ahead and open up to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers is the fourth book in the Bible. And if you are uh, just joining us this morning or if you're uh, new to East Cooper or Young Adults, uh, we have been doing kind of a, a different kind of series. We've been doing one book of the Bible each Sunday. We've been kind of walking through the big story of the Old Testament through the books. And uh, if, if you've been here, I hope you guys have enjoyed this uh, as much as I have. It's kind of fun to take a look, take a step back and look at the big picture of the scriptures. Uh, Last week, when I introduced the book of Leviticus, I said that Leviticus was where Bible reading plans go to die. Uh, We learned hopefully last week that's not really the case. It's it's a great book. Uh, But uh, this week, uh, my personal experience, the first time I read through the book of Numbers, uh, coming off of Leviticus, I was like, the first three or four chapters, I was like, oh no, here we go again. Like, you literally start with a list of numbers. That's where the book gets its name. Uh, But you get to chapter 6, and uh, all sorts of crazy stuff starts to happen. You've got fiery serpents attacking people, staffs budding almonds, the earth opening up and swallowing people. In chapters 20 to 25, you have uh, this pagan sorcerer who's making prophecies. And so this this book is, uh, Numbers is certainly um, an exciting uh, book to read. It's, it's a lot easier to approach than Leviticus. But interestingly enough, after all the exciting things happen, the book ends again with a census and a bunch of laws. And uh, we're going to see this morning that this little structure, census and laws, lots of crazy, and census and laws uh, is very helpful uh, for us understanding the message of this book. Uh, real quickly, we'll just look at the context uh, of this book in the Bible and then briefly just talk about how it's structured. And then we'll dive in. So uh, we have studied Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. I didn't write them down, sorry. Uh, In Genesis, very briefly, we get the story of God creating a good world, uh, mankind ruining that world through sin, and God beginning his plan uh, to redeem and renew this world through his people. He promises this guy Abraham uh, a few things, that he'd have a great many descendants, one of whom would bless all the world, and that they would live in the promised land, this wonderful land of Canaan, just for them. The book of Exodus tells the story of God uh, saving these particular people out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. He rescues them, redeems them, brings them to Mount Sinai, uh, enters into a covenant with them, a special agreement. He invites them into uh, a marriage-like relationship with the living God. Uh, They break that covenant. Some really bad things happen. And then the book of Leviticus comes, and it shows us uh, how God is providing a way for these wicked people uh, to live in his presence. And now, uh, in the book of Numbers, the story will pick back up. So we've got God's people. They've been rescued. They are God's people, and they've been promised that God is going to give them the promised land. And they're going to set out from Mount Sinai uh, on a journey to go to the promised land. And then we'll see... All sorts of crazy things happen. Uh, there are a lot of ways you could divide up the book of Numbers. I've divided it into two big sections. Uh, Numbers chapters 1 through 20. And this is a story of God judging the wilderness generation. So there's this generation. We'll see the story. But uh, in chapters 1 through 10, we see all these things that God is doing to set this generation up to be blessed by him. He, he arranges laws. He gives them lots of people so that they will be able to go in the promised land. 
and they totally blow it. They disobey him, not once, not twice, but consistently, and they actually get passed over. God actually sentences them, since they don't want to enter the promised land, to wander in the desert for 40 years and die. And then in the next section, God raises up their children, this new generation, to inherit the promised land. And we'll see all that worked out uh, as we open the book. But um, we have this story here of uh, God passing over one entire generation because of their disobedience and raising up a new one. And uh, we, will, uh, we will see what that means for us as we dive in. So uh, go to Numbers 14, uh, verse 20 to 45. This little passage uh, in many ways summarizes the whole message of the book. A little context for you. Uh, God's people uh, have gotten, their toes are literally on the edge of the promised land. They can see it. And they send some people there to, to, to uh, figure out what it's like. The people come back. And two of the people say, this is a great place. It's going to be wonderful. God's going to help us. Ten of the people say, it's scary. There are big people there. We're all going to die. And the congregation decides that they want to go back to Egypt. So they're like, we would rather have slavery than God's will for us. And God says he's going to destroy them. Moses intercedes. And here's how God responds. All right, this is uh, Numbers 14, verses 20 to 38. Here we go. The Lord, then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly, as I live, and all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, none of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went. His descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and said, to Aaron and said, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, no one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. Your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithful, faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive. 
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, as uh, the Apostle Paul says later, that these stories uh, were written for our instruction. They were, this, this generation was, in fact, recorded as an example to us that we would not desire evil like they did. So, so we just pray that you would, uh, you would come and you would work and enable us to hear your voice uh, through this book. pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. It is with us every Friday night makes us uneasy as we weigh our social options. It makes us unwilling to commit to any one thing unless something better comes up. It is with us every time we scroll through our friends' perfect-seeming Instagram and Facebook lives. It is with us occasionally uh, every time one of our friends hits a milestone we haven't hit making us say, I can't believe I'm already 25, and I still haven't gotten that. What is it? It is the new disease of our generation, the fear of missing out. How do I know it's millennial, a millennial fear? Because we made an acronym out of it, FOMO. Our ancestors feared death. We fear missing a great party. Our ancestors feared starvation and attack. We fear missing the one, either the job or the person that will make our dreams come true. And uh, before we just dive into numbers, I just want to encourage you, if, uh, if you find yourself uh, living with some FOMO, uh, especially in these particular areas, to really work hard at putting those feelings and desires to death. Um, they are based on lies. Someone else's life would not make you happy. Um, the perfect social option for any particular evening, it's an illusion. Um, hitting career goals and milestones and hitting relationship milestones will not satisfy you. Um, if you know Jesus, if you walk with him, if you treasure him and trust him, some of the loneliest or most unsatisfying moments can be filled with his presence. However, all right, that being said, there is such a thing as a healthy, righteous, holy fear of missing out. Uh, in fact, it's a fear that this, the book of Numbers is meant to instill in us. Um, God desires us to fear that we miss out on his best. He wants us to see examples of people who were steadfast in their rebellion and resistance to him, and therefore they missed out on his blessing. Now, I don't think God wants us to live with any other kinds of fears of missing out, but here he wants us to have this healthy, I don't want to go there when it comes to missing his best. And so we'll see three, three encouragements uh, from this book. First, God is preparing you now for blessing through conquest. Second, you can blow it through rebellion and therefore don't miss out. So, uh, this first section of Numbers shows God setting up his people for blessings, setting them up to conquer the promised land. Now, there are some difficult parts about this. I'm going to try to walk almost chapter by chapter and help explain what's going on here. So if you look at chapter 1, Numbers 1, you don't have to follow along, but it might be helpful if you're trying to read this book to maybe write a sentence down by each chapter. But um, Numbers 1 is a census. It literally numbers the amount of people that are in each tribe. Uh, it, is, it is very boring if you're looking at just what the words are. 
Uh, but there's this little phrase. We've seen a lot in the Old Testament that repeated phrases help us discern meaning. There's this little phrase in each of the censuses, in each of the numberings. Uh, look at verse num- Numbers 1, verse 20. Talks about the people of Reuben. Lots of words there that are repeated. But the very end of verse 20 says, All who were able to go to war. Those listed at the tribe of Reuben were 46,000. And this little phrase is repeated in every single sentence. All those who were able to go to war. In other words, God has taken this people from Egypt who were slaves. And he's not just rescued them. He's not just redeemed them. He's made them his army. He's raised them up. He's given them what they need to conquer, to inherit his blessing. He's setting them up to inherit the promised land. Chapters 2 through 6 are, uh, are all these very interesting and somewhat difficult to understand laws and prescriptions for having God's presence in the camp. Numbers 2 is, is this very interesting description of which ways the, the, the camp should march. Uh, numbers 3 and 4 and 5 are primarily about the priest and what they're supposed to do. But the idea here is God wants his people to be able to march and to conquer the promised land with his presence. He's giving them everything they need, not just to go out and do his will, but to have his presence with them. Um, And if you look at Numbers uh, 7 through 9, what we see is God's people seem to be responding really well to this. Another interesting section, number seven, when there's all these offerings at the tabernacle, you literally see uh, the tribe of Zebulun did this, and the tribe of Naphtali did this, and you're kind of like, what's going on here? Well, the idea is the tribes here, the 12 tribes, are unified in their obedience. They're unified in bringing offerings to the tabernacle. They're together. So big picture, numbers seven through nine, they show God's people. They show them ready to inherit his promises. They show them they have everything they need to get to the promised land, to take it, to enjoy it, to to be the people whom God's promises poured out on. And the very end of Numbers 9 um, is this really great picture. Uh, Numbers 9, verse 15 and 16 talks about the tabernacle, which was this uh, tent, this place God had set up where his presence would dwell. And it says here, after all this, Uh, On the day the tabernacle was set up, the cloud, the cloud of God's presence covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And at evening, it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Talks about how this, this presence would lift up and lead them. So in other words, this particular people, they had the literal, physical, tangible, I can look at it and see it, presence of God among them. They had everything they needed. They were being set up for blessing. And uh, just consider this for a moment. God is always setting up his people for future blessing through conquest. Uh, in, our, in our particular time, uh, after Jesus, this looks a little bit different, right? Uh, most of you in here are not called by God to take up arms and march on some particular land. But, but you have been... Uh, big picture from the Bible, you have been rescued from slavery. If you're a Christian, if you know Jesus, God has taken you from a place when you were enslaved to sin. So the book of Ephesians says, you were, you were a follower of the prince of the power of the air. You were a slave. And God's taken you. He's rescued you. 
And he hasn't rescued you so you can just enjoy life here. He's rescued you, made, him, made you one of his people, as Paul says in 1 Timothy, a soldier of Christ Jesus. And he hasn't just raised you up. He's given everything you need to have his presence go with you. Right? Why do we have the scriptures? Why do the scriptures command us certain things? What do they reveal? They reveal chiefly, here is how you can have the presence of God in your life. And even more, he's given you something he hasn't given this generation. He's given you the spirit. Um, you know, Francis Chan, this is very quotable, but he said in a sermon, uh, all of us typically have as much of God's presence as we want. And I think the idea there is typically when we are not experiencing God's presence, it's not that God's not showing up. It's normally that we're not showing up. But the point of this section and the point that I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you guys to think through for a second is uh, that God, in your present life, in your circumstances, God is setting you up for future blessing. He's setting your life up for those things. And he's not doing that, all right? He's not giving you all these things uh, so that you can feel guilty that you're not living the right way. Like some of you guys, as you hear this and what God's done for you, you're expecting me to like drop the hammer on you, right? That even though he's done all this, you're not doing your part, right? That's not why he's doing this. In fact, the story so far is of a people who have nothing to offer God. They're consistently rebellious, right? They have, uh, they have all sorts of trauma in their past. Imagine what would happen to you in the life of a slave, right? They had that trauma in their past. They've been disobedient to God. And God actually has taken their stories and he's used them and he's formed them into this people that can have his blessing. And so uh, maybe uh, for you, God has told your story so far, whatever the good stuff and bad stuff it is, so that you can live a life blessed by him. He's setting you up wherever you are. But this next section of Numbers uh, shows us that we can blow it, that we can miss out on God's blessing and on his best through disobedience. In fact, we can be so rebellious and so hard in our hearts that we die in the wilderness. Now, Numbers 11 through 20, the exciting section of Numbers, has all these very colorful and interesting stories about people's rebellion. And typically, uh, we have one of two reactions, right, when we read these stories. We, we re first, we think, I cannot believe they did that. They are so stinking wicked. And second, uh, you know, uh, I, I better work on some of this stuff. But I think really, uh, I think what we're going to see is the way these people rebel against God is really going to hit home as we walk through. So we'll walk through three ways the wilderness generation rebels against God. First, they rebel against God's provision. In chapter 11, the first thing they do when they set out to travel to the promised land, they get tired of the food God's provided. So I haven't explained this yet because we're, we're doing big looks at the Bible. But uh, when God's people were wondering, when they were going from Egypt to Mount Sinai, when they were wandering the desert, God provided them bread from heaven called manna. So literally they'd wake up in the morning, you know, the wilderness is not a place. Like there were like millions of people in the tribes, right? 600,000 men and all their families, right? And uh, there were not a lot of good animals. There's nowhere to grow stuff. They had no food. So God literally, every morning they'd wake up and there would be bread from heaven, manna, little, little wafer type things on the ground. Uh, think of maybe, uh, this is probably a bad example, 
because they don't taste super great. But think of our uh, Lord's Supper wafers, right? It, it would be like that, all right? And, uh, and the idea was uh, God told them to gather a certain amount each day, not to gather stuff for tomorrow, but just for today, and they would do that by trusting him. But anyways, uh, so God's people have seen him provide over and over and over again. But then they get tired of the manna. Uh, it's not that God hasn't given them food. Um, it's that they're just tired of eating the same thing every day. Um, in fact, they have a strong craving for meat. They, they say, I wish we could go back to Egypt. They had meat there. And I remember, uh, it was really funny, I was vegan for a while. When I was vegan, uh, it was almost universally Christians would say, I just can't live without meat. Like, how can you do that? It's like, that's a part of their sin. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but seriously, um, uh, the, the big thing is they weren't content with what God had provided for them. Just take a look at your life for a second. You content in the job, even if it's difficult. It's not as difficult as camping in the wilderness, right? Are you content with what you get to eat and drink? Content with your level of emotional satisfaction? Content with your local church, with this group? You may not be saying, let's go back to Egypt, but you might be closer than you think in all of those daily grumblings. Don't live in your guilt. Just turn from it. Second, uh, so first, they rebelled against God's provision. Second, they rebelled against God's leaders. Uh, twice in Numbers 11 through 20, people are judged for rebelling against God's leaders. In Numbers 12, Miriam and Aaron opposed Moses. Aaron was actually Moses' brother, and he was the high priest, and his wife's name was Miriam. And uh, they basically... Uh, looked at Moses and got tired of him being the head guy. And they said, I cannot believe uh, that you would be so arrogant and presumptuous to think you're the guy. Uh, additionally, in um, Numbers 16, a whole group of Levites, which were priests, people who were already special in, uh, in the tribes, all right, they rebel against Moses and Aaron and say, come on, like, who said you guys get to lead? The whole congregation has the spirit. What's your deal? Um, but what they're doing is they are rebelling against God's anointed leadership. The reason Moses was the guy is because God had called him to be the guy. He'd anointed Moses. He'd said that Moses was the guy. And so these people are actually rebelling against God. God radically judges them if you read these stories. But uh, things have changed a little bit uh, since Jesus came. Uh, in the Old Testament, typically, God would anoint particular people, individuals, guys like Moses, judges, kings, uh, prophets, and and your relationship with them would imitate your relationship with the Lord. Uh, things have changed since Jesus. But uh, God still has given practical, tangible places of authority uh, for Christians. God has given the local church his authority. There's this passage uh, when Peter confesses to Christ. Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my church. And what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. In other words, this confession, these people who confess this, the local church, they will have my authority on the earth. Maybe uh, that's new information to you. We could spend some time later talking through uh, God establishing local churches as his little agents of authority. But just with that in mind, what's your attitude towards this local church? Is it, a, is it like a club that you can join and leave if you feel like it? 
Is it like maybe your spiritual Walmart or spiritual Chick-fil-A? As long as the prices are good, it doesn't cost me too much, and it meets my needs, I will continue. But when those two things stop, I'm done. Do you feel any particular uh, burden to care for these particular people around you? Do you actually listen to your pastor's counsel or actually even ask? You may not be about to stone Moses, but in your relationships to the God-given authorities in your life, you might be closer than you think. Third thing, though, all right, and here's the crazy thing. God's people could have still inherited the promised land doing these things. This was not what disqualified them. Right, now, again, I'm not going to encourage you to do that, okay? You, you live, you grumble about God's provision, you grumble about God's leaders, your life's going to, you're just going to constantly be frustrated and dealing with stuff, right? But here's the thing. Uh, here's the one that got them. If, you, if I've lost you, just come back to this. Here is what made the wilderness generation missed it. They rebelled against God's promises. Not just his provision, not just his leaders, but his promises, Numbers 13 and 14, that passage we, uh, we saw, uh, what happens is God's people get their feet on the edge of the promised land. They, they can see it. They, they've heard God's voice multiple times saying, I will give you this land. And then they hear about a couple of big guys that are scary, and they say, we're going back to Egypt. And what's happened there is they have <coughs> chosen willfully to rebel against God's promise to help them, to give them the promised land. And this, this is the particular sin. This is the thing that brings God's judgment. Again, I, I think uh, maybe that seems strange to you, but just think about this. These are the people who had seen the Exodus. They saw the plagues in Egypt. They saw the Red Sea open. They saw God judge Pharaoh. They've seen the mountain of fire. They've heard his voice from the mountain. But once walking with Jesus gets a little bit uncomfortable, once it pushes them beyond what they feel like they can do, they turn back. And God gives them exactly what they want. Notice we opened with uh, Numbers 14.20. And this is a, I think this is a great picture of grace, but it's a very strong warning to us. God says, I have pardoned. In other words, I've forgiven I'm not going to forsake my people. I'm not going to destroy them. In fact, these, these rebels continued to get food and water and God's presence for the next 40 years. He says, I'm, I, ha- I have pardoned, but God's forgiven, but he's going to pass this entire generation over. There are irreversible consequences for their consistent recalitrant rebellion against God. Just consider for a second, the, the root sin underneath this sin is a refusal. It's a refusal to trust God's promises and to take up his call in your life. Right? When, you, when you hear things maybe from the pulpit or maybe out of the scriptures that make you a little bit uncomfortable, and you just say, nah, it's not for me. Right? You're rebelling against God's promises. When you hear about opportunities, uh, to serve in Jesus' name, to help other people come to know him. And you're like, yeah, I, got, I need to sleep in. I need to keep my rest. Right? You're probably rebelling against God's promises to help you, to use you. But here's the thing. Here's what I want you guys to take from this section. It's not that God is 
condemning you for this present in your life. It is present in your life, right? I see it in mine, okay? Here's the thing. These three things, rebellion against God's provision, rebellion against God's leaders, rebellion against God's promises, these are the greatest threats to the future of your life now and forevermore. Not people, not your circumstances, not your longings, all right? The rebellion in your heart, these are what threaten your blessing in the future. And these are the things God is calling you to deal with today. Maybe just pray, right? Spirit, I see this in me. I'm not going to run from this, right? Help me. Have mercy on me. Change me. So final section of Numbers shows us that God raises up another generation to have his blessing. Um, There's both an encouragement and a warning here. The encouragement is this. Hey, listen, God's purposes can't be thwarted. Like, it's not like you can ruin God's plan for the world. Like, that's impossible. God is going to bring people to know him. He's going to give people abundant life in Jesus. His people are going to know him. That's certain. It's true. We don't have control over that. It's glorious. But he has no problem raising up people in our places if we will not take up his promises. He has no problem doing that. So let's walk through this section really quickly. Uh, Numbers 20, which is, I think, the transition passage. Uh, Numbers 20 and 21, the book kind of shifts. The old leaders start to die, and the new generation begins to get raised up. And the difference here, though, Numbers 21, the people actually complain about their food again. Um, And it's not good. But notice in verse 7, chapter 21, verse 7, the people come to Moses and confess their sin. And they ask for forgiveness. And God provides for them. And all of a sudden, in chapter 21, all these songs start getting sung. People of Israel have similar issues. People opposing them. No water. But they, they start celebrating God's provision. There's this change. And then comes maybe the weirdest section of the entire Old Testament. Um, the saga of Balaam and Balak. I just learned how to pronounce both those names, by the way. Uh, Google's very helpful. Balaam and, and Balak been pronouncing them wrong my whole life. Anyways, um, you're reading numbers, you're reading about rebellion, reading about laws, and all of a sudden, we totally change the setting, and we've got two pagan guys, a pagan king uh, named Balak and a pagan sorcerer named Balaam, and all sorts of weird things start to happen. Balak says, come and curse the people of Israel for me, and Balaam says no, and the Lord actually speaks to Balaam and says, you know, don't do that. Uh, But then Balaam changes his mind. The Lord says he can go, but he tries to go. And then there's this angel that tries to kill him. And the donkey speaks. It's 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 crazy. Y'all should read it. It's it's, it's like, I can't believe this is in the Bible, you know. But um, but finally, uh, Balaam uh, gets to Balak. And he is on a big mountain uh, looking over the camp of the people of Israel. And Balak says, curse them for me. In other words, you know, use your uh, pagan magical powers to put a curse on them. And uh, the rest of the scriptures tell us that Balaam tries that, but it doesn't work. Over and over again, Balaam says, I cannot curse those people whom God has blessed. It's impossible. And in his last oracle, uh, again, one of the most interesting moments in this book, chapter 24, uh, verse 17. Look at what a pagan sorcerer prophesies I see him but not now I behold him but not near 
a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Balaam sees a far-off, distant ruler of the nation, a star and a scepter. And if you guys were paying attention in uh, our little series on Revelation, uh, you notice Jesus always claims these things for himself, the star, the scepter. So right, here's the thing, right in the middle of all this disobedience, and in fact, right after Balaam's oracle, God's people blow it again. In the middle of their disobedience, in the middle of this whole generation being cast down, the idea is it's impossible to thwart God's purposes. God's people will be blessed. They will be blessed. Their mission will go forward. And in fact, we see that most clearly in the gospel, in what Balaam prophesies, that, that, that in spite of all the history of Israel that goes really poorly through the rest of your, of your Old Testament, right, God still brings from them the star and the scepter to rule the nations, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the most weird, unknowable of ways, he does this not through bringing Jesus as a conquering king, but bringing him as a suffering servant to die in the place of sinners. That is how the offspring of Abraham blesses the nations. Not through conquest, but through being conquered. But the rest of Numbers 26 to 36 shows God restarting with a new generation. Um, you're reading Numbers and you're like, ooh, I got through the census. Phew. Get to Numbers 26 and there's another census. And uh, it's, it's very interesting. Um, but the, the idea is very clear, right? God's starting over. And at the end of the census, it says that among those, there was not one of those listed by Moses and Aaron who were in the wilderness of Sinai. They all died in the wilderness. So God starts over. And there are all these little stories. I, I don't want to get into them too much, but there are all these little stories at the end of Numbers that show this new generation starting to actually have faith. They actually, they actually go out and fight, conquer. Um, there's this really interesting story in Numbers 27. The daughters of Zelophehad, great name for future children of y'all's. Um, the daughters of Zelophehad, he has four daughters, no sons. And they go to Moses and they say, Moses, uh, you know, my, my, my dad had no sons. And, you know, inheritance is typically passed through sons, right, in our culture, right? What are we going to do when we get to the promised land? Shouldn't we have our father's inheritance? That's an interesting story. But the idea is these daughters had faith when the promised land wasn't theirs, God was going to do what he promised. That's why the inheritance was an issue, because they believed they had an inheritance coming, and they acted upon it. So the rest of this book shows God raising up this faithful generation, raising up people. But again, the idea is very clear. God's purposes cannot be thwarted, but we personally can be left behind through continuous, recalitrant disobedience. And what's so interesting about this number story is that perhaps, and I haven't counted, so I could be wrong, but it's perhaps the most retold story in the whole Bible. Uh, Old Testament prophets are always talking about the wilderness generation. In fact, twice in major sections of the New Testament, uh, the numbers generation uh, is discussed at length. Um, 1 Corinthians 10 and Hebrews 5 both spend long, a long time talking about this generation. And what's so interesting is that uh, the audiences are completely different. The, the, the Corinthians, 
they were uh, very gifted, very mini- ministry-minded uh, Christians who wanted to live hard for Jesus, but they also <laughs> wanted to have as much sex as they wanted to outside of marriage. They wanted to get drunk. They wanted to be arrogant. So they had, they had one set of issues. The Hebrews were totally different. They were former Jews. They were moral. Uh, they'd become Christians. But all of a sudden, uh, their Christian lives had brought some difficulty. And now they're thinking, you know what, I might just... I might just go back to my Jewish ways. It was moral, it was good, and it wasn't nearly as hard. And to each of these very different kinds of audiences, the numbers generation is lifted up as an example. Here's what happens when you shrink back from everything God's called you to be. Here's what happens when you get your toes on the promised land, when you're right there, when salvation is offered to you, and either through living your own way or shrinking back because it's uncomfortable, turning back. 1 Corinthians 10 goes as far to say as these things took places, these things, the numbers generation in context, took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Hebrews says this, again, in the context of the wilderness generation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Just notice, if you want to be moral and comfortable, or if you want to claim Jesus but live your own way and you don't repent, you might die in the wilderness in the ultimate way. You might actually, like the New Testament authors are not talking about whether or not your life's going to go on. They're talking about salvation. They're talking about actually having the kingdom of knowing Jesus. They're saying it's possible to be in the sitting of this room under the, under the teaching of scriptures, to be this close, to have heard God's promises, to have heard his requirements to have his promises, and because of recalentrance and disobedience, to miss it. So today, if you hear Jesus' voice, and maybe his voice does not sound so pleasant right now, maybe it's just conviction, maybe it's just bringing you to, to fear, but if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Say, you know what? It's possible that's me, but right now, in this moment, I'm going to get right with the Lord. I'm going to trust him afresh. I'm going to trust that promise that Jesus saves whoever comes to him. I'm going to trust that right now, that what Jesus did is enough for me. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay my life afresh at Jesus' feet. That thing that I've been holding on to and saying, anywhere but here, Lord, right? I'm going to lay that down too. But you know, um, I think uh, there were people who died in the wilderness who actually will probably see in heaven. Uh, the reason I can uh, say that is because Moses actually dies in the wilderness too. Uh, Numbers 21, God commands Moses to speak to the rock, and Moses gets really ticked off at all these really ridiculous people, and he strikes the rock in his anger. And uh, God says, well, you know what? You did not honor me as holy before the congregation, so you're not going to enter the, the, the promised land either. And I am a, I'm confident Moses is a Christian, right? It says here, and uh, I think it was, I think it's numbers, that he's the most humble man in the whole earth. So I think, I think he's in heaven, right? Um, but I think uh, if that's true, uh, I, think it's, I think there's another application here that we can think about. And that is that it's possible to have heaven. It's possible to have enough Jesus to save you, but to live your entire life in a wilderness of your own making. It's possible to have enough Jesus to get into the kingdom. I'm not, I'm not saying it's, it's sure, okay, but it's possible. 
that you have enough Jesus to get in the kingdom. But to continually make choices, to continually resist that call of Jesus on your life, to know him and to make him known, right? To love God and to love others, to live your life, to treasure Jesus, and to help other people treasure him too, right? To continually resist that and to actually just keep spending your life in the wilderness. And maybe you're thinking right now that once you get out of this season or this stage, you'll be satisfied and content and happy. Guys, that's a lie. You're just going to, when you move out of this stage, you're just going to go to a different part of the wilderness. You're just going to have different issues. Satisfaction in life and joy come from walking in God's ways, from taking him up on his promises, from living accordingly. So listen. If you hear Jesus' voice, don't harden your heart. If you're noticing some wilderness in your life right now, some rebellion, some consequences, you can turn from them. I think the biggest difference between what happens in numbers and what happens in our lives is, is today is the day to change. It's not like you did something uh, five years ago or five minutes ago that God says, finally, you're done. Actually, in the New Testament, because of Jesus, because of grace, today's the day. You can change. You can, you can change the trajectory of your future today. So uh, I asked you guys to be in the class to share a story of a time you lived by example. And uh, I was a middle child, and most of the time I complain about being a middle child because the older sibling picks on you and the little sibling always tells on you, so you're like, you're always just stuck. That's why I, that's why I avoid conflict at all costs, because I'm a middle child. But uh, there were some great times of being a middle child, and that was that my brother uh, got to screw up over and over again um, and let me learn from that. So this is a, this is a story, and again, uh, we were very bad children in high school, but uh, my brother, this is what my brother did one day, and I, I just, I still can't believe he did this, but... Uh, he's a 16-year-old, junior in high school. Uh, he skips class. He skips his 12 o'clock class, comes home, cooks a burger, and is drinking a beer on the back porch as a 15-year-old, all right? And unbeknownst to him, my dad comes home really quickly for his lunch break and catches him. And I will never forget my dad's face that night. Like, I'll never forget just like the boom, you know? And so I learned, I learned. When you go there, it does not go well for you, right? Um, there's just a particular hard-heartedness and rebelliousness and, and idiocy there that dad does not, is not okay with. There's a line. And uh, as I read numbers, I think, praise the Lord for older brothers, right? There were a few million people who died, who lived their entire lives in tents and died in the sand so that you wouldn't have to. This happened to them so that it wouldn't have to happen to you. Take God up on his promises. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we just thank you um, again that you're so kind to us. That you give us clear examples in the scriptures. And we just pray that by the spirit and uh, with joy because of Jesus that you would enable our repentance. I just pray for people in here who are inclined uh, to respond to your word by saying, I had better do better, or, you know, I've blown it, it's too late. I just pray, I pray you deliver them and that you would enable them to see your grace here and that today is um, today's the day they can change. I pray you do that in Jesus' name.